0: Good morning, Blue Mountain Community Church. My name is Keita Obuago, and I am the lead pastor at West Springs Church in Calgary, Alberta. And I'm pleased to be able to share the message with you this morning, even though it's virtual. um, Perhaps one day I'll make it to your beautiful community and get to see you in person. This morning, we are going to be looking at 1 Samuel um, chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesus told his son Abinadab, to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimei, but Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said to him, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil and he, and he anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. This past week, one of my sons noted that he was going to kill the giant. This was being demonstrated with tiny cereal flakes as he leaned them up against his finger, only to topple them down and crush them with his spoon. The table was scattered with crumbs as he systematically took down one giant flake after the other. When I asked him what he was doing, he noted that he was killing the giant. I prodded him a bit more and he said, David killed the giant, I'm David. And me, his mother, I cringed just a little bit. These stories, as we title them when pulled out of the Bible, create a narrative and framework that when we're careless, lead us to overlook the rough edges of passages and persons for the sake of highlighting individuals as honorable heroes, rather than as complex humans. If you search through the story of David, you will find a boy overlooked by his father. Some may even suggest a boy forgotten, as the prophet Samuel searches for a king, learning that the current king he had chosen was no longer God's chosen leader. It's an ironic story as Samuel arrives at David's home and begins to go through the list of available sons of his father, Jesse. David's dad brings out all the boys except one. Can you imagine that when Samuel asks Jesse to bring all his sons forward, Jesse completely ignores David? He doesn't call him, think of him, or casually mention him. A friend of mine who's a psychologist notes that when he first heard the story of David, he immediately began to connect the future actions of David with this moment and wonder what it would do to David to know he'd been left out, forgotten, and overlooked by his father. Nonetheless, after all other options are exhausted, David is chosen as the next king of Israel. And as a child, these words never left me. God doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Somehow these words stuck with me that everything I read, heard, or studied about David was read through this lens. David was a good man, a godly man, and worthy of the title of hero. Growing up, I'm not sure if any of you remember this, there was a group that traveled around to churches and they put on conferences where you could walk through the Bible. And they had actions and coloring books and all kinds of resources. And he distinctly remembered that the way you could remember about David was noting that Saul had a dark heart, David had a whole heart, and Solomon had a divided heart. The message was that David wholeheartedly belonged to God, while others just didn't measure up. But as an adult, the story and life of David is challenging. David spends much of his adolescence or young adulthood aiming to either please Saul, the man whose kingship he will take over, or run away from Saul, as his life is continually threatened. In the midst of this, he's best friends or somehow very close with Saul's son, and later marries one of Saul's daughters. Hence why my psychologist friend often wonders about the effects of Jesse on David. As we watch David persistently lean into Saul, despite the many times Saul tries to kill him. David has other wives and women along the way, but the one who stands out is when he brazenly takes Bathsheba. In all of the books that I was reading through this week um, and looking at David's life, it's noted that the way the text is written, it's made clear that Bathsheba was both a daughter and a wife and unavailable. Yet David chooses, one, to watch her bathe on the rooftop, and then secondly, to summon her to his palace and proceeds, as most modern authors would title it, to rape her, assault her, coerce her, and then leave her. Many would suggest that David had no intention of speaking to her again, of seeing her, or engaging with her after he had conquered her, but alas, she is pregnant, and when his plans to ensure her husband would imagine himself responsible for these pregnancies fails, David goes out of his way to ensure Uriah dies in battle. Womanizing, adultery, and murder, are just a few of the accolades heaped onto David, who was noted throughout my childhood as a man after God's own heart. David's sins don't end there as he doles out specific harms on his children, most notably his daughter who is also raped but by her brother. And when David hears of what his son has done, the text notes that he did nothing because he was his firstborn and he loved him. He later ices out the other son, Absalom, who can also be noted as one seeking and searching his father's affection and action. And as the veneer fades and is stripped away, I am left questioning and wondering how we ever noted that David was chosen for his heart, for his character, for his loyalty and affections to God, in the kingdom he oversaw. Lots of authors wonder alongside me about who David actually is and why he's so revered in various traditions. David Wolpe, in his book David Divided Heart, reminds the reader that the story of David is one that was most likely collected and written by various authors and with different motivations. Some being political, propaganda, and others to prop up Israel's imaginative memory of themselves. Brueggemann notes that David is like a character in a good drama that takes on a life of his or her own and even surprises the playwright. More than any other person, ancient Israel was fascinated by David, deeply attracted to him, bewildered by him, and occasionally embarrassed by him, yet never disowned. None of the stories could quite comprehend him, let alone contain him. And then there's Dr. Will Gaffney who dedicates an entire chapter in her book Womenist Midrash to the notion of women who were dominated by David, outlining the dangerous and perhaps dismissive engagements he had with women time and time again. Yet the story of David remains and we are invited like Samuel to see the outward appearance but search for the heart of the story. Of course we can look at David and find all manner of what not to do, ways to not be a spouse or a leader or a parent. In David's story we can see the ways the sins of the father are passed on to the next generation and take note of our own woundedness and be intentional about turning the corners in our own families. In David's story we can lean in and see the ripple effect of brokenness as we walk with David from the moment he lays eyes on Bathsheba to the moment he kills her husband, to the moment his own son, as instructed by Bathsheba's grandfather, sleeps with David's concubines on the rooftop, an homage to revenge. In David's story, we can ask questions about Goliath and the weight of being a child who assuredly kills a giant or the weight of being forgotten by his father or the weight of being chased and sought out to be murdered. But at the end of the day, I hope we find David a human. Someone a bit like you and me who have history, wounds, rough edges, moments when we rise and moments where we fall. But it was in reading Walter Brueggemann that I found an insight that felt worthy of passing on to all of you. After David assaults Bathsheba and is later confronted by Nathan regarding his murder of her husband as a ploy to hide his indiscretions, David learns the child they were to give birth to will die. After they mourn the loss of their child, Bathsheba gets pregnant again and gives birth to a son named Solomon. Solomon means shalom, or the man of peace. It's ironic because everything that has led to this moment has been full of turmoil. But later it says that they named him Jedidiah, which means Yahweh loved him. Brueggemann notes that there is no explanation, tracing, and and the narrator seems to have no curiosity and does not respond to ours about this name. But he also notes this, in a family of resilient evil, Yahweh loves. In a history of sordid disobedience, Yahweh makes an abiding commitment. This is not a hopeless account in which evil easily defeats and destroys because there is love. And that made me pause to consider the story of David as one that leaves me with many questions, concerns, and challenges as I wrestle with my Sunday school stories as they clash with my more recent readings and takes on David. And I wonder, along with Brueggemann, that as Nathan, the very prophet who had announced to David his sin, now walks across the lawn to make an unsuspecting proclamation of love if that is not as hopeful as we can get. Despite our sin, God is love. Despite our wounds, God is love. Despite our broken edges, God is love. Despite the very worst of who we are and what we've done, God is love. And that statement is more than a declaration of something that's out there as it is a reality for where we are in this moment. God is love and we are loved. A friend noted to me that David may rise out of the mire of kings because for all of his errors, he never forgot God and didn't move the nation away from worship of God. But that doesn't take away from his faults, his legacy, and the great losses he inflicted on many. But it does somehow give us hope that even in the strangest moments, the darkest ones, the most difficult ones, God can show up in the form of a prophet in the arrival of a son, in the knowledge that you are forgiven and declare in loud and soft ways how deeply you are loved. And I wonder if that's enough of a reason to lean into this sordid story of David. And I hope that this emerging truth will be one we fall into over and over and over again, regardless of where we are, where we've been, what we can see or can't see ahead. I think it's fitting to kind of end with Paul's word to the Church, a word that we can take into the week with us. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted, hungry, destitute, in danger, or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. The stories we read, the stories found in scripture, the tales of men and women, and how they engaged with God are there for various reasons. Many to point us towards the emerging Messiah, Jesus. In the meantime, when you read specifically through the Old Testament, as you read these stories, I invite you to dig deeper and to look for their imperfection. And yet to see God prevail to see their challenges and to see God present, to look at the places where their legacies are less than beautiful and see where God creates beauty. And then to recognize that the men and women whose lives we read about are more like us than perhaps we imagined, and that the God who prevailed, who was present, who created beauty and who was love at work in the midst, love who was love at work in their midst, is the same God who prevails despite your faults, who is present despite your challenges, and who creates beauty despite our less-than-beautiful moments, and that one thing remains. One thing is true despite all that surrounds us. God is love, and we are love.